Good morning. If you go ahead, grab your Bibles uh, and go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, where we're going to be. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I really don't try to do the exact same thing second service that I do first service. Um, I don't script. Uh, I don't use manuscripts. I just kind of go with a rough outline and, and go from there. Um, there is no chance I could do second service when I did first service. Um, but you guys are going to get the exact same warning that they got. This is going to be, uh, it's going to take some work this morning. It's going to take some work because the text at hand um, is filled with some hard and frustrating truths. And so they're going to be difficult to digest. And so you're going to have to work. The other reason it's going to be hard is um, I used this word to describe it this morning, and I think it's accurate. I'm in some kind of funk today. So you guys can define what funk means. Um, But that means I have absolutely no idea when I could go off the rails. But I could send this sucker south pretty quick. So buckle up. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) Um, It's just a little weird, and, you know, God be glorified, and that's our prayer, and I'm sure he's going to be, so... Um, let me just kind of give you a little background. Um, when you get to the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon is, is writing, he is giving us, basically he's giving us a reality check of life. Uh, he is telling us to forget the Christianese that we've all learned. He's saying get rid of all those um, simple, overstated Bible phrases that we say over and over and over again. Get rid of the things that really are equal to our version of witchcraft. Where we try to say magical incantations that contain biblical truth that will magically change the situation we're in if we say it just right or just at the right time. That's voodoo, in case you're wondering. And yet most of us as Christians are guilty of it. Solomon says he's sick of the the fake arrogance that he sees around him, but it's not just around him, it's in him too. He grows tired of that. And, And so he gives us what some have called cynical, but I would say he gives us a realistic view of life under the sun throughout Ecclesiastes. It's a pretty positive outlook for the morning, isn't it? Um. And what he does, um, in chapter 4 is where we're going to pick up, it kind of comes off of chapter 1, chapter 2, particularly. In those chapters, he started describing what life was like under the sun. The idea of life under the sun was the life that you and I live now after the fall. So in a Genesis 3 world where um, we have chosen to rebel against the God who loves us, who created us, and who deserves our allegiance, we have kind of pushed him off the throne to make ourselves central, to make ourselves the the point to make ourselves the ones who need to be worshipped, even, even uh, receives our own worship, we worship ourselves. And in that world that is under the sun, what you find is this world that is marked by a, a Hebrew word, havel. And the way that word is translated in Ecclesiastes varies depending on what translation you use. It can be vanity of vanities, all is havel. It can be meaninglessness of meaninglessness, all is havel. 
Pointless of pointlessness, it's all chavel. Just futility of futility, all is chavel. And so as he's walking through it, he's saying, this is the life under the sun that we live, this meaningless life where the sun rises, the sun sets. And guess what happens tomorrow morning? Sun rises, the sun sets. Sun rises, sun sets. It just keeps happening over and over again. The, the rivers, the rivers flow into the oceans, and the ocean never gets full, and the river never runs dry. That's pointless. So what's the point? It just keeps happening over and over and over again. Then you have humanity that is never satisfied. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. The ear is never satisfied with hearing. There's always something next. What's the point, then? Then you have this, this generation that we currently live in who, who thinks they are the generation of generations. I mean, this generation thinks they've got it all figured out, and the reality is the next generation won't even know the names of the people in this generation. All of this is this meaningless cycle that happens over and over again, and it's like we're trying to chase the wind. So how do you overcome that? How do you overcome the difficulty? How do you overcome the disappointment? How do you overcome that feeling of meaninglessness? How do you overcome the sin that besets you, the sin that overwhelms you? And, and, and I think, so bear with me, because you gotta hear this to the end or else you're gonna think I'm a heretic. I was lied to. And I'm betting many of you in this room were also lied to early in your walk with Jesus. See, I found myself living that life that was meaninglessness, meaninglessness, meaninglessness. I was in the cycle. I had my own rotation, my own treadmill that I was on over and over again, looking for purpose, looking for contentment, never being able to find it. And somebody came to me and said, if you take Jesus, he'll remove all of that for you. That was a lie. Now, what Jesus did bring to me is purpose. What Jesus did give to me is an understanding of who is to be the center of my life. It's not supposed to be me, it's supposed to be him. But all those difficulties did not go away. And if you were told that if you just cling to Jesus, everything gets easy, you've been lied to. You've been lied to, and I believe our church, not Uniontown, I think the Universal Church, is experiencing the results of that lie being so prominent behind our pulpits. So how do you overcome the meaninglessness? If it's not just cling to Jesus, what else is it? So why don't you just give us four easy steps to overcome discouragement? And today, it's a special deal. If you buy today, you'll get a superpower. I mean, that's an easy book to write, right? I mean, we all know. We could all come up with four easy steps. Okay, four Christianese easy steps to overcome disappointment. Okay, so here we go. Um, read your Bible, pray, go to church, tithe. But what happens when you do all four of those things and your boss is still a jerk? What happens when you do those four things and unspeakable tragedy comes into your life? What happens when you do those four things, your bank account's still empty? What happens when you do those four things and somebody steals your puppy? You're not overcoming discouragement, it just keeps coming. The promise of four easy steps is similar to the promise for the athlete that if you just take steroids, you'll be the strongest athlete that there is. And what they do, and you look at that, and it seems to work for everybody else, but in the end, what you find out is everybody else is hiding the truth because what those things are doing is actually destroying the person from the inside out. 
Aren't you glad you came to church today? Um, so, so in reality, what just happened is I just preached the first half of my message without looking at the Word of God at all. That's a problem. So chapter 4, verse 1, let's walk through this and let me show you that Solomon is actually saying these things. And understand that where I'm going is I'm trying to point to the fact that you and I need better answers. You and I need better answers. Chapter 4, verse 1, it says this. Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commend the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Let's stop there. What you see is this dramatic picture being painted of a victim in tears. And, 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 and no one is there to be a shoulder to cry on. Nobody is there to come alongside them and, and, and assist them. Instead, the people with ability, the people with power, instead of using it for good, they're using their power to advance themselves. And that happens everywhere around us, doesn't it? Instead of looking at the opportunities and positions that God has given us, in positions of authority, positions of power, instead of using that to lift other people up, what we are doing instead is using our position of power to tear other people down, to, to stomp them down so that we make ourselves look better by making them look lower. And this foolishness. Oppressors are in total control. They do whatever they want, and there's no one to stand between the oppressor the oppressed. See that today? I'll give you an easy one, a hard one. See that with abortion. See that with abortion for sure. Almost 125,000 abortions occur each day. That is a picture of oppression. The voiceless one. Instead of somebody being a voice for the voiceless, and someone, instead of someone being the power for the powerless, they've used their power and their authority to snuff out their lives. Maybe one that's easier for us to, to wrap our heads around. How about bullying? Bullying is real. It happens in our schools. It happens in our workplaces. It happens in our homes. It even happens in your church. The only people who wouldn't know that this oppression is true, as Solomon says, are the ones who haven't been born yet. But everybody else sees it. What are we going to do? Let's keep going. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. I saw that all labor and all skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. What, what he says is that, that there's a competitiveness that occurs within us to outdo somebody else. And so we have this constant sense of competition. Because at the broken foundation of who we are and what we, what we desire most is this, this, this force within us that just wants to be noticed. 
We just want to be seen a little better than, than everybody else. And the foolishness that this leads to, it just wrecks lives. Because what you find is, is we're so busy trying to keep up with the Joneses, and the Joneses are so busy trying to outdo us, that it just continues on this endless treadmill, this cycle of over and over and over again. And it's this picture of, so, so who's going to spend the most money to look better than the other person? And one of the places that it ends in disaster is with debt. Debt is a, a huge problem in America. Debt is a huge problem at Uniontown Bible Church. And I don't mean as an organization. I mean individually. And that's because we just want to outdo people. Um, let me help you. Do you struggle with it? Uh, I'm guessing that many of you, when you drive through Westminster, stop to get a coffee that has that green and white cup, right? Why? Why would you get a coffee that has the, I mean, it costs $5. What's the point? The point is you want to be able to appear to everybody else, look, I understand how life works. I have the special coffee. Okay. Maybe another picture. So you're wearing clothes today. Praise God for that. Just want to be clear. We're thankful for that. You're wearing clothes today. Those clothes that you purchased, did you purchase them because you want them or did you purchase them because you want other people to see you in them? Now, let's be honest. That's not a bad reason. The problem is it can get out of control. But it's not a bad reason to purchase something and be like, you know, it's okay. So, so full disclosure, in the last week or two, I purchased a new pair of shoes. Now, uh, my goal in life is to end up on the Instagram thing called Preachers with Sneakers. They take a picture of the guy's sneakers and they comment how expensive they are. They will be totally disappointed when they realize $19.99 at Ross. That's right. But, but, but when I bought these shoes, it wasn't like, oh, I like those shoes. That's not me. It was, I got to get shoes that won't be so repulsive that everybody's eyesight is at my shoes. They're not like, what is the dude wearing? I mean, you can critique my theology all you want, but you come at this, and you and I are going to have a problem, okay? I'm just kidding. The reality is all of us think about other people when we even make purchases. We're driven by jealousy. We're driven by envy. We're driven by a desire to be central, a desire to be noticed, a desire to be the focus of everybody's attention. And that never brings satisfaction. Look at Proverbs 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart is life to the body, but jealousy is rottenness to the bones. It doesn't bring victory. It doesn't bring satisfaction. It brings corruption. Let's keep reading verse 5. The fool holds his arms and continues, sorry, and consumes his own flesh. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. What this is talking about is the lazy person. This is talking about the person who has just stopped working, not taking a rest for themselves. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But this is the person who just doesn't work. And he talks about, uh, the, the writer of Proverbs often refers to him as a slacker. And here's a good picture of it. The slacker buries his hand in the bowl and he's too weary to bring it to his mouth. That is a hilarious verse. 
Because what that is saying is you at home this afternoon watching football, and you got a big bowl of salsa, you're holding a chip, and you're like, bloop. I just can't do it. I ain't got it. I... Never mind, it ain't worth it. And we're that ridiculous. We are that foolish. We're that lazy, and that is the reality of laziness. It breaks out against all sound judgment. And what laziness actually leads to, we see in Proverbs chapter 6, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will come upon you like a thief, like a robber, and your need like a bandit. Laziness doesn't bring victory or satisfaction. Laziness brings poverty. Let's look at verse 7, and I'm going to go back to a couple of verses that I skipped later, so so just understand that. Verse 7, again, I saw futility under the sun. There's a person without a companion, without even a son or a brother, and there is no end to all of his struggles. His eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things? This, too, is futile and a miserable task. On the opposite side of laziness comes verses 7 and 8, where it talks, speaks to workaholism. Workaholism. It's not the person who's got a good work ethic, who puts in a hard day's work and comes home tired. This one is looking at the cycle and saying, you know what, this is ridiculous. This is out of control. I'm not doing this anymore. I can't deal with my own stuff. I can't deal with the stuff of everybody else. I'm going to bury my head in my work. I'm going to find my identity in my work so I no longer have to deal with this. I'm going to be a career person. Now, being a career person isn't all bad, but when you do it to escape, that's a problem. Those people are convinced that somehow that endless cycle of hardship, hurt, heartache will be taken care of when they find their identity in what they do in their busyness. Solomon says there is no satisfaction to be had there. Look for your satisfaction in workaholism, chasing the wind. You will never get it. Chapter 4, verse 13. Better is a poor, sorry, try that. Yeah, that's right. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, a second youth who succeeds him. There's no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This, too, is futile in a pursuit of the wind. The the, the futility, the cycle... The, the, the treadmill of the life around us that is under the sun is also pictured in somebody who is unteachable. See, the, the king that is being spoken of here is a, is a young man who starts off as poor, even ends up in prison, and yet somehow becomes king. The inference is he became king because he listened to other people, their counsel, their advice. And he becomes king, and it's a wonderful thing. But then he stops listening to his advisors, and disaster. Someone else comes to replace him. Because that king believes nobody else can be smarter than him. And, 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 and even if they are smarter than him, it doesn't matter because he refuses to listen anyway. We can't be like that, folks. We need people in our lives who will speak truth to us and that we will listen. I, I, this may be a shocker. You don't get everything right. 
I know, it's a surprise. Problem is, every single one of us has blind spots. <laughs> this is going to shock you. You can't see your blind spots. Isn't that amazing? That's why you need people in your life to speak truth into you. That's why you need to listen to their teachable, teachable moments in your life. That's why you need to uh, listen when they try to hold you accountable. Like, bro, you are walking the wrong way. Your feet are headed to destruction. You need to pull this together and get back on track. You need to listen to them. You need to understand that iron sharpens iron, and that is exactly what it is that they're trying to do. You need to be willing to allow other people to point out those blind spots. Now, then I'm going to jump to chapter 5, okay? And let me, let me say this at the onset of, of chapter 5, starting in, 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 in verse 1. We, we have all these different things that are happening, all these different things that are demonstrating our brokenness. You start off with oppression, you go to envy, then you go to laziness, then workaholism, and then you become unteachable. And, and here, you get to chapter 5, and this other evidence of our brokenness is religion. Religion. And I'll explain that after I read it. Start in verse 1. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. Don't be hasty to speak. Don't be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth, so let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. See, the problem with religion is it's created in us this false understanding of how we can approach God. Religion tells us we can go into God's presence and we can impress God with big talk. It's people who want, and it happens every week, guys. You can walk into the presence of God. You can walk into the house of God. You can walk into church, and suddenly the, the switch is flipped, and you become this holy person who speaks all the right words. Hey, God's not fooled. He's not pleased either. Talking a big game means very little to him. You know, you know where I, I see the switch flipped the most often? On the golf course. If I go golfing and I get paired with a group, usually it takes till about the fifth, sixth, maybe seventh hole. And after cussing like a sailor for five, six, seven holes, the fella I'm golfing with will look at me and go, So, what do you do for a living? My pastor. <gasps> I'm sorry. And my response usually is something along the lines of, hey, man, I get it. Now, if it was me cussing like that, then I should apologize to you as a pastor. You're not, it's, it, and, and then it's interesting because then the rest of the round, it's beep, oh, sorry. And there's this sudden awareness of what they're saying, and they try to flip the switch, and then they break out every Sunday school story they've ever heard. And it's like, stop, I just want to golf. Now, now, and I will share the gospel with them if I get paired with a group. I've told you my story about that. That's the easiest in that God has blessed me with as a pastor. It really is. I'm a pastor. That seventh hole, they're like, what do you do? I'm a pastor. They're like, oh, I'm like, yeah, you know it's coming, so you tell me. You want me to tell you now or you want me to talk to you later? So it's an easy in, okay? Um, <laughs> the, the reality, though, is that's where that switch flips. And, and for us as believers, we do the same thing. 
we know what we can say and can't say around people. Many of us are pre-programmed, aren't we? Something about this room, these seats, these lights, this music causes us to not even pay attention to the words coming out of our mouth and our hands go up. Peter tells us if you're raising hands, be sure they're holy hands. I think one of the greatest sins committed on a weekly basis actually occurs in church. One of the Ten Commandments is do not speak my name in vain. Doesn't mean don't swear. It means don't use God's name in an empty way. And I'm afraid, unfortunately, most of us show up at church completely disengaged. We sing songs without engaging our brain, and what we are doing is saying his name in vain. But we know how to flip the switch. See, the the reality is that religion isn't going to pull you from this cycle. It actually just entrenches you within it. Look at verse 4 with me, chapter 5. It says this. When you make a vow to God, don't delay in fulfilling it. Because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you don't vow than you vow and not fulfill it. Don't let your mouth bring guilt on you. Don't say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake that you even vowed that. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? For many dreams bring futility. So do many words. Therefore, fear God. We think not only can we impress God with big talk, but our religious thinking creates in us this thought that we can impress him with big promises. It's that uh, foxhole confession. If you get me out of this one, God, I'll do anything. God, if you take the heat off here, then I will. If you do this, then I'll do. And verse 2 tells us, man, when it comes to God, let your words be few. If you make a vow, you better fulfill it. Take it seriously. And I think the point here isn't for us to do more or to promise more. The point is for you and I to stop, to listen, and to know him better. Because when your understanding of God comes that you think you can impress him, then you tend to cover up with words and empty promises, and that's not what he wants. In fact, he tells us in verse 6, God will be angry with your words and he will destroy the work of your hands. So, so, so this is just a mess, isn't it? I mean, there's so many things that we cling to that are actually just continuing us on the cycle. We're continuing on the treadmill. We're not getting any satisfaction. We're not being redeemed or rescued from any of these things. So here we go. Here's the book. I'm going to give you three easy steps to live successfully in a world gone mad. I'm going to give you three observations from this text, but know this. There are hundreds more in Scripture, and it takes hard work. So I hope you're ready to work. The very first one is back in chapter 4, verse 6. Chapter 4, verse 6 tells us this. Better is one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort and a pursuit of the wind. What he says is we need to enjoy a handful of rest. You and I were not created to have two hands filled with toil, work, pain, and exhaustion. What you and I are created to be is have, yes, one hand. One hand should be filled with with toil. We should work hard. We should come home tired. But then that other hand, you should drop all of that stuff and fill it with rest. 
with quietness, with calmness. Because when you grab that handful of rest, what you are doing is showing that you know that you aren't God. One of the greatest evidences that you are not God is this. You sleep. He doesn't. And when you sleep, what you are doing is demonstrating that you must trust that he is actually in control. It says, I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. That's the only reason you come out of that snoring, drooling, lumpy condition that you are in every night. Because God has chosen to sustain you through the evening. So this is going to sting a little bit. It stung me. So, you're welcome. I'm going to share it with you. We need to be reminded that God is not impressed with our staying up late, getting up early. God is impressed with our willingness to trust him to do his job as we sleep. So when you grab that handful of rest, you're showing that you know that he is God and you aren't. When you grab that handful of rest, you're showing an appreciation for that moment that you are currently in instead of obsessing over the future. Because I'm going to tell you, we are notorious at missing out in the moment that we are in. And I know, man, today's culture gets a bad rap. It's all about, okay, oh, you know, it's modern technology, so nobody's actually present. No, we have been doing that forever. There's nothing new under the sun. We've just found a different way to be distracted, that's all. But we continuously miss out on the moment right before us. We're always looking for that next moment. In middle school, oh, I can't wait to get into high school. In high school, man, you know what's going to bring me satisfaction? Getting a license. You get your license. Oh, I can't wait to get out of high school. You get out of high school. I can't wait to go to college. You go to college. I can't wait to get a job. You get a job. I can't wait to get married. You get married. I can't wait to buy a house. You buy a house. I can't wait to have kids. You have kids. I can't wait for the kids to move out of the house. I mean, it just keeps going and going and going. It's this cycle, this treadmill of meaninglessness because everything is dependent upon what comes next instead of enjoying the moment. That next thing will not ultimately satisfy. The next thing will be the one that makes us all click is a lie. The next thing will bring me happiness. Man, you and I have become willing victims of life under the sun. We need to enjoy that handful of rest. We need to enjoy our families well. We need to take time to laugh, to tell jokes. Parents, you need to take time just to stare at your kids even though they think you're weird. You need to enjoy the time, that handful of rest, enjoy the time of taking a walk, even if it's by yourself, taking a drive, playing around a golf, if that's your thing, or enjoying the garden that you've worked so hard in. To enjoy that hand of rest means to spend time on the couch reading a book when it's raining. You know what else it means? It means to dance like a fool at a wedding. It means to wrestle with your children. It means, hold your breath, that you dance and wrestle with your spouse in your bedroom because that is a beautiful and glorious gift from God himself. 
Enjoying the handful of rest is enjoying the beautiful meat that God puts on your plate, that medium rare steak. Or if salad, go ahead, whatever. <laughs> Why? Because the meat is, this, is to be worshipped? Oh, some people you would think so. But if our worship terminates on that thing, our worship should not terminate on the moment. Our worship shouldn't terminate on the medium rare steak. Our worship shouldn't terminate on dancing at the wedding or being in the bedroom with our spouse. Our worship should never terminate there. But what it should do is lead us to the place where we thank the good and glorious and wonderful God for that wonderful gift he has given us because he didn't have to. That's what it means to enjoy the hand of rest. It means to enjoy the moment. We need to stop, oh man, I'm, <laughs> I am so tired of Christians. I could stop there, but I'll continue. <laughs> it's an occupational hazard, no, I'm just kidding, no, I'm just kidding. Um, I am so tired of Christians being the most miserable people around. Shame on you. God is not a cosmic killjoy. Don't dance, don't go there, don't watch that, don't eat trans fats or whatever it is. Man, we get so focused on what we don't do. That's not the gospel. We are not a people of don't, we're a people of did. The gospel declaration is, yes, Jesus did come because God did demonstrate his love for you in showing you that love through Jesus Christ. Jesus did die in your place on the cross. Jesus did rise again from the grave. Jesus did ascend to the Father, and Jesus did offer that as a free gift to you to accept. The gospel is a gospel of did. It's not about don'ts. Jesus did come and broke that cycle of emptiness for us. We need to be grateful for that gift. So embrace and enjoy a handful of rest. Skip down to verse 9 of chapter 4. Not only should we enjoy a handful of rest, we should also invest in and enjoy real relationships. Chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either one falls, his companion can lift him up. But pity the one who falls without another one to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together... They can keep warm. But how can a person alone keep warm? If someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Let me start by saying this. Single ladies in the room with us, if a dude comes up to you and tries verse 11 as a line, laugh in his face. Hey, baby, if two lie down together, you know, if you're well alone, how can you stay warm? I'll show you how you can stay warm. Start running. Um, <laughs> we're supposed to be investing in and enjoying real relationships because we are relational beings. Time-wise, I've got to move through this one kind of quick. So in, in the middle of all this chaos and, 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 and everything being upside down, it becomes unbearable at times, and that's why we need real relationships. And we praise God for those relationships we need them. So, so please hear me. I know some of you will hear that and be like, but I don't, I don't have any relationships because nobody cares, nobody gets me, no one asked me. Nobody. Okay, understand this. I love you. I do love you. 
and I'm going to say this as carefully and cautiously as I can, when you read scripture, you never find building relationships being a passive event. You must be active. So I will say this as lovingly as I can, get out of your seat and build relationships. That's on you. Now, we can provide environments and opportunities. We've provided community groups. You can sign up for those out in the lobby today. Growth studies, you can sign up for that in the lobby too. I have a Wednesday night growth study that we're doing um, because uh, Team Kid is meeting here, the youth group is meeting here, and moms and dads are like, so where do we go? Well, we're providing a growth study opportunity, and so the first thing we're going to cover is marriage. Why? Because I'm a master at marriage? No. That'd get me in trouble even just joking about. No. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is difficult, and you know what? When one falls down, if there's other people around, they can help pick them up. And that's our goal. And then we're going to do a parenting one. Same reason. Parenting's insane. We're not doing it because we can give you all the answers. <clears throat> doing it because we can walk alongside you and build relationships and invest like this, three-fold cord. Final one I'm going to point you to is in chapter 5 and verse 7. While religion views God as somebody who can be impressed by our activities, truly knowing him tells us this, we must fear God. And and I'll be honest with you, uh, fearing him isn't only being terrified of him. But that's included. I, I think we've kind of swung the pendulum too far the other way, so now instead of there being any fear, terror of, of who God is, now it's just, hey, how you doing, bro? Now, that won't cut it. You realize who you're talking to, right? You realize who God is? Maybe this will help you. You know that flaming ball of gas that our planet goes around every year? The one that provides enough light for the entire earth, enough heat and warmth for the entire earth? God breathed and that came out. You stare at the sun for five, six, seven seconds and you burn your cornea and yet you're gonna walk into the presence of the one who breathed it and be like, yo dog, Not my God. So you should be terrified of him. He is a holy, holy God. But it's more than just being terrified of him. Fearing God also means trusting that he knows what he's doing. Fearing God is trying to draw near to him while understanding your terror of him. Which is why in verse 1, Solomon says, make sure you guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Watch what you're doing. Look which way your feet are pointing when you make sure you need to be coming straight to God. Not going a side direction, not coming backwards, but you need to be heading straight to God. What this is doing is living out what we talked about last week, that although we don't get it, God's timing is perfect and we need to trust him. Even in the middle of all of this brokenness, even in difficult times, even when it doesn't make sense, we need to trust him because God knows what he's doing. This is going to sting. Please be ready. It is wildly unpopular, but at the end, it is beautiful. God ordains 
difficulty in our lives. My God is not impotent where he just stands back and something difficult happens in my life and he's like, oh, I didn't see that coming. God ordains it. He didn't just allow it. Many times he ordains it. Difficulty oftentimes is a result of our sin. The the difficulty can be a result of somebody else's sin. It can be a difficulty because we live in this world that is so fallen and broken. But sometimes it's not because of those things. It's because God has purposefully placed you in the wilderness. And I don't like the wilderness. Me neither. God knows exactly what we need in order to yield ourselves totally to him. So in preparing for messages, I will often listen to somebody else preaching the passage so that way I can just get a sense of what other people are observing in the passage. And, and um, I was kind of shaken by this one particular message. Because it talks about exactly that point of sometimes God brings us into the wilderness on purpose. What it's brought to mind is the story, a very popular story, a very family unfriendly story of Hosea. For those of you who don't know the story of Hosea, Hosea was a prophet. God spoke to Hosea and said, I'm not just going to use your message that comes from your mouth. I'm going to use your entire life to picture how I feel for my people. So this is how I'm going to do it, Hosea. I want you Mary, prostitute. <laughs> Hosea probably was like, that is not the plan I had for my life. Prostitute that Hosea married, her name is Gomer. Of course it is. Now I'm married to a prostitute and her name is Gomer. My life rocks. <laughs> God tells Hosea right out of the gate, this is what's going to happen. You're going to marry this prostitute named Gomer, and what Gomer is going to do is she is going to cheat on you repeatedly. Over, over again. She's going to cheat on you. She's going to cheat on you again. She's going to cheat on you again. She's going to betray you. She's going to leave you. She's going to hate you. She's going to say terrible things about you. She's going to reject you. And at that point, Hosea's got to be like, what have I done? Why would you make that my life? Now, just in case Hosea was thinking, that's fine, when she leaves after cheating on me repeatedly, I will then just issue a certificate of divorce and no longer be married to the prostitute named Gomer. I will be free. I will be able to wash my hands of her. And God says, hey, Hosea, just so you know, every time she cheats on you, I am going to increase your love for her. Every time she betrays you, You're going to love her that much more. And I'm going to do that. You can't just wash your hands and walk away. You're going to hurt. You're going to grieve. But you won't walk away from her. Now, Now, Gomer is led to the wilderness, to the desert, 
And she's in the desert, and while she is there, she gets to the place where she is just at the end of herself. She is sick and tired of herself. She's seen the cycle that she's been on. She's on that treadmill that we've been talking about, and she sees the destruction in her life. She sees there's no real satisfaction there, and she finds herself in the wilderness, and it says that God comes alongside her, and instead of reprimanding her, instead of berating her, instead of telling her how horrible she is, to do these things to her husband. It says that God speaks tenderly with her. God speaks lovingly to her heart. Why? Why is she even in the wilderness? Why is she in the desert? What is God doing? God led her to the wilderness. God brought her to the difficulty. Why would he do that? Because there are some things in her that can't be redeemed apart from the difficulty of that moment. There are some things in her that she can't repent from until she realizes how truly thirsty she is. There are some things that she will never recognize about her brokenness until she's led into that wilderness of difficulty. And it's amazing. As you read chapter 2, God says in that moment, after he spoke tenderly to her, something beautiful happened. It's in that moment that Gomer stopped calling him her master. Started calling him her husband. In that moment, it went from an intellectual understanding of who he was to an emotional moment where it is, that's how he loves me. He's my husband. He's not my master. He is my husband. He is the one who cares for me. He's the one who loves me through all of this. And she never would have come to that place were it not for So some of you need to know that the difficulty of the moment that you are in is not because of your disobedience, it is not because of your sin, and it's not because he is angry with you. It might be because you need this moment to see how broken everything else around you is, and you will stop trusting in that and trust in him and him alone. So in this moment, as difficult as it might be, yield to him. Surrender to him. Watch what he does. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And Once again, I'm going to ask that we just take the next minute or so here to reflect quietly on what the Spirit's doing in our heart, what he has called us to for next steps. Father, I thank you that your goodness to us is unending. I thank you that as we sang even before the message, you have always been faithful. Never a moment in our lives have you dropped the ball. Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes to understand what it is that you have for us in this moment. I pray for these men and women and boys and girls in this room. I thank you for each one of them, and I thank you for the love that you have for them. God, I ask that you would reveal to each of them how they need to take their next step 
Lord, I pray that they would have the ability to trust that you're good, and your timing is perfect, and you can be trusted. And for those who find that particularly difficult, give them faith that they just don't have. Breathe wind into their sails. Create in them not just the clean heart, create in them an intense desire to submit their entire life to you. God, I know. I know when we do that, we won't be disappointed. So give grace. Give strength. Apply these truths to our hearts. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.